And so I think technology is really got uh, is really going to be at the forefront of enhancing communication, of enhancing the provider patient dialogue and experience, whether it's you know hands on or remote. And there's always going to be some things that you've got to physically be there for, but we're going to see we're going to see more of of that. We're going to see a lot of leverage around data. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. All right, guys, I got to give another shout out to a quick sponsor of the show, Chili Piper. Did you guys know that 60% of inbound leads don't convert to a meeting? And that you can double your inbound conversions by eliminating the waiting period between the form fill and the meeting? And so with Chili Piper, you can turn those leads into meetings instantly with intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route leads in real time. Also, you never let leads fall through the crack because they have a two-way sync with your CRM, which just helps to also give you clean attribution on those leads at the end of the day. So with Chili Piper, you have no more leaky funnel. Instead, you've got more leads, more meetings, and more pipeline. Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com slash leaders to learn more. All right, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge, and today my guest is Jerry Hogan. He's the president and founder of V-Cure. Jerry, welcome. I always have my guests do their own intro. You can do it better than me. Please tell me about who you guys are and, and what you're doing, and we'll jump in. Sure. Happy to be here, by the way, David. We should have a good time. We're about five and a half years in in a company. We're in the cancer space, and we're, we were primarily started to deal with uh, the sequencing of the human genome, which they've applied to cancer now, so that we can personalize treatments to individual uh, patients and uh, reduce side effects and hopefully uh, produce better outcomes while making the physicians a, a couple extra bucks and getting rid of costs. So we're pretty excited about the results that we're seeing uh, in terms of patient outcomes and survival and those types of things. That's I mean, obviously, just an incredibly complex and green field. Uh, there's a a lot of work to do there. I mean, so much energy being poured into the the technology and data side. Uh, yeah, tell a little bit of the the story around getting there. It's not uh, it's not a simple solution. Well, you know, it, you, you hit the, the, the key word there that you used was complexity, and you've really hit the, the nail on the head. You know, when you look at uh, the history of cancer, I think through 2018, there was maybe 90 or so anti-cancer drugs. And during COVID, we approved that many again, and there's 1,250 coming through uh, FDA. And, and the cool thing about the ones that are coming through, they're immunotherapy drugs. So they're really drugs that are aimed at finding that cancer and turning your own immune system uh, against it. So... You know, it would have been uh, 2015, I guess. I'd retired up at the mountains in Colorado and lasted about 12 weeks and got enamored with all this genomic sequencing. 
long story short, we looked at all the complexity of these treatments and side effects and all the new drugs coming through and then the financial complexity around who pays for them and all that sort of stuff. And the technology infrastructure is really not there to help the clinicians make good decisions, much less if you put them on the right plan, how do you actually manage all that stuff on a day-to-day basis? So we concluded that we needed to apply artificial intelligence to that problem. So we, we set out to build a custom AI engine that could interact with data. As long as you could give us data, we could go away and think and, and give you good recommendations. And, and you know, maybe two years into it, we did a little bit of a pivot and we it wasn't going fast enough for us in terms of people cooperating with their data. So we decided that we would build build out a full set of functionality to actually run a cancer center. So, you know, we did that till late 2019. And so we're taking that to market now. And so our our platform does everything from physician orders to pharmacy dispensing to integrating with an infusion pump and doing the financial aspects of it. So really heavy technology-based, really heavy knowledge-based using AI. And then this is a, it's a people business, right? Because you're getting people to change ways that they do things and, and they're kind of setting their ways for a long time. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's a heavy lift to, to change, but the results at the end are really gratifying both for the physicians, patients and clinicians, but, but for us, we hope. So anyway, we're giving a, giving it a college try. <laughs> Absolutely. And so did you find that because the data collection was, was so difficult to make a reasonable model set? that it would be better to organize the data and, and also collect to come in with that backside result? I asked that question because a lot of the times we'll talk to people in the, the AI and ML space and, and they'll talk really about, you know, the multi-year slog of coming up with even remotely clean data to input into the model in the first place. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question and, and the simple answer is yes. What we did is we kind of stood back from it and said, Rather than apply, applying AI to, you know, a doctor's progress note or some dictated stuff and trying to figure out what they really meant, can we really change the data input? So, we, you know, we built user interfaces so that a physician can talk to our platform and record things discreetly in the first place instead of having them dictate analog, get a get a note and then apply AI to that. So, and you know, we were fortunate enough we're starting greenfield, so we didn't have to exist in legacy old systems that weren't designed to do effective data capture. We've done a lot of integrations with other systems like lab systems and early out of the shoot, all the next generation tumor sequencing, the genomic uh, providers, you know, the standard was send you a PDF report, which is basically a dictated node. And we worked with them to get discrete data in the first place, which really gave us a, a leg up. And as you understand, if you've got good solid discrete data, now you can start to apply AI. We've got a lot of uh, you know medical rules, but now we're at the at the situation as we collect more patient information, more encounter information in a discrete manner. We're starting to apply machine learning to it to say, hey, what's the next targeted gene that a drug company should be developing? So you can you can see the the interest that we have from pharmaceuticals and and researchers out the back end, and then we take those data sets and a de-identified basis and give them back to the clinicians so they can write papers and investigate and compare themselves and with a with a real bent towards can we improve this and can we solve this it's funny because I, I sometimes i'm confrontational with the physicians and i say the reason cancer isn't solved is you guys are all selfish and they say what do you mean by that he says well you dictate your note and you have your own patient record and it's not shareable with anybody and they say yeah you're right so but give me better tools and i'll do it a different way so that's really what we've set out to do 
and their requests are are for sure you know for sure valid so our company kind of we take the two ears one mouth use them in that proportion and if we actually listen and and build good solutions to address what the real problems are then we get adoption so we we you know it's not a novel concept but i think we've forgotten about it over the decades uh, it's oh gosh there's so much there i, I want to unpack for founders and like i hope everybody didn't you know, kind of check out yet because everything you just said is valid for every kind of of data or technology startup that really has this like sort of user base that you need along for the ride or nothing works. And where I see a lot of these types of businesses fall on their face is the reasonable yet poor assumption that we'll be able to come in and apply AI, ML, et cetera, to a problem in order to solve. But what you found is that in fact, you can't normalize, you can't plug into all the existing legacy data sets. And so you had to first come around and do the data gathering uh, in a way that provided a functional business solution that actually made somebody's life better. The result of which happens to be the discrete data that you can then collect into a, a reasonable taxonomy and data model, and then do the thing that you thought you were gonna do you know, kind of at the beginning, a lot of tech founders don't have that business concept or the patience even to to start there. Yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, physicians and researchers are likely the worst to do that with. And, and you know, you, you say, well, Mr. Ms. Doc, uh, you know, if you gave me your uh, review of systems or your physical exam results in discrete fields, I can help you make decisions around that. And they go, well, that's all cool, Jerry. But I really need to call the patient. Can you show me easily where their telephone number is? And so there's those practical trade-offs, right? And you can't, you can't be on the 22nd floor of some high rise figuring out that you've got a really good AI solution to some, you've got to go to ground zero. You've got to be in the clinic. You've got to go and follow these people around and say, what, what really wrecks their day? What really makes their day? And then you can figure out where you can slide those technology things in and really add value because they all want them. They all want them. But it's got to be it's got to be done in a practical way. Like we've got we've got some physicians that see you know between them and their nurse practitioners, they get eighty five patient visits in a day, right? So they 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 measure their day in thirty second bursts. If you can send them if you can save them thirty seconds on eighty five patients, they love you. They love you, right? Because they, they get a half an hour back at the end of the day that they may actually be able to do something with. So it, it really. The analogy I use, you know, because I'm I'm a Midwestern guy, I'm a farm kid growing up, and and you have to apply, you know, liberal amounts of common sense to these problems, and so I look for people that can back up a grain truck and dump a load of wheat into into a bin, right? And then if they if they're computer scientists or clinicians, then you got something because it's all the human interaction and how do you figure out workflows, and then you can really bring the awesomeness of this technology uh, to bear on the root cause problem and benefits everybody. And for listeners who don't know, maybe the the term EMR, this is electronic medical records, records yeah. management, right? And that's the stuff, the you know, those complex looking computer screens. Whenever you're at your you know practitioner's office, and they're typing in all kinds of stuff, and they ask you all kinds of questions, and that gets stored into your medical record, you would presume incorrectly that that all those things come to you know the same type of spot, or there's a you know, sort of data format. There are in fact data uh, standards you know, where uh, theoretically they all end, end up in the same type of uh, data format, but uh, 
those of us who have worked in data know that that's in fact not true. And a data standard just means that it's your version of that you think is better of the thing that everybody else is doing. So, you know, sort of my standard is always better than your standard. And that's what happens in a lot of a lot of those fields. And in order to create, that's a really complex user experience problem when you need a tremendous amount of data um, in and out from, from a patient in and out from an office to, you know, you only have so much screen real estate. You only have so much uh, ability to make a very complex information problem accessible in a way that, you know, the, the users and everybody can experience that. Uh, so how did you go about doing that? I mean, you can listen to users, of course, then you have to listen to all the users and all the users have a different opinion. And then you end up having to fork your product or, or, you know, stay, close to the vest on, you know, which things you allow in or not. So it's, it's challenging. Yeah. You know, I think part of the problem with that um, is that we kind of go into these things with the preconceived notion that, Oh, well, let's go and we're going to fix the doctor stuff. And then we'll go and fix the nurse's stuff instead of looking at the whole picture. Right. And, and what we did from the start, and I think this was likely one of the cleverer things that we did is we said, you know, we looked at the market and we said, cancer incidence is growing, going to be more patients that get cancer in the United States. Um, you know, the physicians, for the most part, oncologists, I think they average 60 years old and their retirement rate is outstripping the replenishment rate by six or seven points a year. So when you look at that and you look ahead and you do simple grade 12 math, you go, well, in three years, how many cancer patients are actually going to be able to see an oncologist? And the answer is not everybody. So there's five or 600,000 going to be left at the door. And we're not going to tolerate that as a society, right? So then you say, how do we actually change the workflows and who really does what? And can we apply AI and good data standards to pushing a day-to-day -day task to the lowest cost common denominator that, that competency that can do the job right so we didn't go and automate what the physician does say we went and thought about well why is why is the physician typing that why isn't that stuff already there when the physician comes to see the patient and start to use data and information instead of putting it in and so if you rethink who's who in the zoo so to speak like how can we get this data captured correctly because uh, there's not a physician I've met that wouldn't come up to a touch screen and touch buttons if you're prompting them and the data was already there and they don't have to do a thing or they talk to it and and they know that, hey, you've got a neurological problem, you've got numbness and it's both hands, both feet. Why can't we record that discreetly today and do stuff with it? And the answer is we can if we try, right? So the whole the whole idea is think outside the box, folks, in terms of what's the longer term vision and how can we eliminate things and how can we free up time and each of those resources to make things better? And if, if your focus is just in the physician, you'll fail because they've got all this elaborate uh, network set up of support personnel that are, for the most part, doing things manually or on paper, or maybe they're typing it into a computer system, as you pointed out before. And, you know, this field doesn't equal that field. And it's a different word. It's all crazy, right? But you have to look at the whole thing. And I think when you go to do product design, I think lots of people make a mistake of not spending the time to go to the field and understand what really happens and all those interdependencies and sort them out and say, well, why can't we get rid of that? It's interesting. We had, you know, we had a, uh, we, we did a bunch of clicks on a function that the doctor was supposed to do, and we had 28 clicks. So we put a team together. This is interesting. Clinicians and computer science folks, and we gave them we gave, divided them into three teams and we said, okay, there's going to be a prize at the end. It wasn't a big deal. It was, you know, a pack of beer or whatever, an axe throwing 
uh, social event. But in 30 minutes, in 30 minutes, they used voice technology. They got this task down to four clicks, right? And, and using voice and touch screen, you say 28 to four. Now, what's it take the doc to type in breast today? Well, that's five. So think about that. He could do any diagnosis and staging with four clicks, which was shorter than him actually typing the, the, you know, the, the name of the disease. And so that's what you can do when you put the right people together, multidisciplinary, and you think outside the box and say, we're not going to tolerate 28 clicks. That, that dog doesn't hunt, right? So Right, right. And this is so applicable to any space. I mean, business process management, any type of enterprise software. And and this is the hard work that I don't I don't know that, you know, again, like it's it's about the patience of discovering those things together with the customer. It certainly speaks to the need to uh, adequately fund these types of efforts because you need an enormous amount of time and, and runway to pull off stuff like that. You know, it, it's it's interesting on that point, and, and I'll, I'll touch on the funding, but when we started this, we started looking at it in, it would have been uh, 2014. We studied it, and my hypothesis was, no, we're not doing this. I don't want to do another startup. I don't want to do it. No, we're not doing it. And we studied it for 15 months, and then we looked at it, and we said, we have to do it. Like we can be successful. So we 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 self funded that for fifteen months. The thinking part of it, right? And I'm talking like PhD level folks that ended up becoming shareholders. So then at the end of that, we said, okay, time to write a check, gang. So how much do we think we need? Well, we think we need a million and a half. Good. We're going to put three and a half in. Write your checks. So we did that, right? And you know, we just did our our Series A five years in because we self-funded and we were $27 million into it. Right. And with really smart people, but it, it takes planning. It takes time. And it's just, it's scale. If you had a smaller business, it's the same thing, right? You, you, you got to watch cash and you got to have enough capital where you don't take shortcuts and, and cause that just costs you money in the long term, and you end up with a bad solution that, and we really were ruthless on, What's the minimal viable product and release one that adds value and has the customer love us? And then we can get to version two and then we get to version three. And, and if you're honest with people and you have a plan and they can see it and you gain credibility by hitting, you know, we're going to have this ready for you in March and you deliver it in February, they love you. You're, you're going to have it in March and they deliver it in April. They go, hmm, what about when there's a bigger one? So it's all about it's all about setting reasonable expectations and then meeting them or exceeding them and and that's you know it's the same in life it doesn't our business anybody's business that's how that's how you get long term customers that that swear by you and our approach has always been to when we get a customer we want them for life right and and we're vested in their business and we're vested in if we can improve their lives day to day and create value for them then a reasonable amount of that value will flow to us. And that's just a hypothesis that we were kind of founded on, on, and, you know, it's been successful so far. So we're not coming off of that. Yeah. I love, and I love how you, you talked about that, you know, because if you're a, an early stage founder or you, you don't even, you don't even think about an eight figure business or a nine figure business, you know, that you can kind of disconnect from a conversation like this, but I do want everyone, and you said it perfectly well, you know, just sort of take zeros off that number i mean you know there's there's businesses that start with a thousand dollars or you know it's like it's in and therefore in, in that instance you think about you know how do i not make 
you know, $500 mistakes or, you know, waste any money on that scale. And, and then you just kind of continue to level that up. And before you know it, if you continue to execute with, with discipline, you're a million dollar business. And if you make a $5,000 mistake, you kind of go, Ooh, that, that sucked, but you're not, you know, sort of in pain because of that. And I, I think that that's the way you have to act, you know, at the beginning, the, the biggest mistake I see is people raise money from whoever's willing to give it to them, you know, at the beginning and spend as if they're 10 times bigger than they are, like imagining that future revenue, you really want to fund yourself, regardless of who you are, how much money you can raise, you know, fund yourself on that revenue stream as, as soon as you can to, to operationalize and behave at the age that you are. Yeah, well, revenue is the cheapest form of capital, right? No dilution with that. But it's interesting if you have an owner mindset and you're spending your own money, and you should always have that mindset, even if it's an investor's money, right? And and so because we were all kind of self-funded, you know, we started with two employees. We had three and a half million dollars in the bank, and we started with two employees. And I wasn't on the payroll; I was donating my time. My chief scientific officer wasn't because you needed to bootstrap the business properly. And I can remember later on, you know, having a, a dinner with physicians and let's just say for sake of argument, it was 250 bucks. Well, we go, okay, well, Michael, your share of that was 50 and Greg's not here. His share of it was 50. And when you think like that, the pennies and dollars, you know, they add up and they take, take care of it, but being ruthless on cash, spending money where you need to spend money, not spending it where you don't like, you know, don't get ahead of your blocking, you know, as, as we say, and, and try and get to having customers pay you for your value. And if they won't pay you for your value, it likely should tell you, maybe you haven't created the value, right? Cause if, if there's enough of it there, people are prepared to, to pay a reasonable price for things and you have to have enough courage to ask them to pay. Right. And you would have had that 15 months of research certainly didn't involve sitting just around your own table. You know, that's that's a tremendous amount of what we would call, you know, lean startup would be the customer discovery. You're sitting around talking to real people about real problems. And that's dozens and dozens of conversations of having your own Kool-Aid thrown back in your face. You know, and it, and it could be the sixth, seventh or eighth thing that you thought you were going to do. And ultimately, somebody perks up and says, that's amazing. Can you really do that? Well, you, you know, it's so true. And having self-reflection and checking your ego at the door, like it's one thing to have passion. I really want to go do this stuff. And, you know, this is a, the, you know, the best idea since bread was invented. But when people are telling you it's not, you have to have some self-reflection and say like, you know, maybe we need a little pivot here or maybe that one needs to go out uh, with the, with the bath water and let's focus on what people are really telling you. Cause they're, they're donating their time in that. We did hundreds, hundreds of interviews with different people and tried on different ideas and lots of them got shot done, shot down. But we were, we like to think we were mature enough to say, well, okay, so that's a bad idea. We got to know at the front, which is, better than spending 50 grand on something and then realizing that you spent another 50 on it, hoping that it's going to be good. And in the end, it was a dog at the beginning. And someone, somebody was gracious enough to tell you it was a dog at the beginning. You should listen to it. Right. And, and, and not waste your money there. So I can't overemphasize real customers, real market, you know, what are the real issues you're dealing with? What are the priorities around them? And then what's the simplest solution that gets us to 90%, right? So what's the, 
What's the easy thing we can build that has the highest impact, right? And that's where you start. That's where you start. You don't start with the toughest problem. Like we didn't start with, with you know, let's go apply AI and go read every document a, a physician ever wrote and figure out, see if we can figure out in two years what they meant by it and if there's any gems in there. We said, there's some practical things like they deal with these patients and now they've got these genomic alterations and how do they interpret them? So we went away and we got experts and we got them to help us with that. And, and then we took a totally different approach than a lot of AI uh, situations that have failed to have taken. So anyways. Yeah, right, right. I talked to a ton of people that just do that, you know, years of data ingestion from massive data lakes and then normalization and data cleanup. And I mean, you know, you're back to writing scripts to just try to figure out this equal this and why or how many values are there and it's a, it's a mess and i should say also that you know like we don't want to get too techy on it this is the same thing that you would do with a services business you know and i i've had that experience where you know a couple of us start a service consulting business and think we have this great process and try to jam it down a customer's uh, wallet and it it doesn't work and then they kind of go oh but that one little thing you did there that was really cool Tell me about that. And and that's the part you thought was the throwaway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it created the most value for the for the customer. It's totally right. It's interesting, you know, because as you know, there's all kinds of AI. And, you know, from a practical perspective, we went and codified world's best knowledge around subject matter. And we use, you know, we use a rules-based engine to inference on it. And so the, you know, modern guys say, well, that's not AI. I says, well, you know, I was around when AI was discovered at the Pricewaterhouse Technology Center in Menlo Park. And the like eight late eighties, early nineties. And it is AI. It's different AI and it's not sophisticated. It's not machine machine learning, but you know what? It's exactly what's needed to solve this problem. Machine learning comes later when we, when we've got good data sets and we've grown our volume and now we can put neural networks to work on that and we can give you, but so it's kind of like if you ask the cabinet maker, you know, to put a cabinet up in the wall, you don't give them a hammer. You just give them a saw. So like, you got to use the right tool for the right job, right? And and not getting caught up in what everybody else is doing, but saying, what are the tools that we really need to solve this problem that our customers are telling us is really valuable? And here's the value equation for that. Then you match capability and you build the right stuff versus the wrong stuff. And then it gets adopted. So it's, you know, the you know, I can't emphasize checking the ego at the door and, and not not necessarily going with what the Joneses are doing and the, and the fab. Don't get me wrong. There's really good technologies, lots of good advancements, lots of smart people, but translating that into something practical day to day that your end user is going to use that delivers value is what generates success. Right. And, and you've seen it too. There's so many fantastic technologies that never got anywhere. And I mean, we look all the, all the time when a business is failing and guys will call us and say, hey, what, and you go look at some of the technologies, brilliant, but they never figured out what to do with it. Right. You know, it's, it's solutions it's, looking for problems. Yeah. It, like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, 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 and yet, if you stand back from that and say, where could this really get applied, then you can really get some, some quick wins. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now you're saying this from a position of having executed it well. I always like to ask people, you know, some wonderful failure stories from, you know, along the way where you, where you then, you know, smack yourself and say, now that seems obvious, but it, it wasn't back then. Yeah. So, you know, the, 
all the things that we executed well, I like to think it's because I executed them poorly the first time, right? So I learned not to do it. And, and you know, we've made mistakes in this one. We haven't made the same mistakes as in our other startups. But, I mean, I'll give you an example. My first startup, I did 54 rounds of capital. Okay, 54 rounds, right? So, and, and that was from family and friends and the hotel owner down the street and the bartender that overserved us one night but thought we were doing something cool. So he found, like, so all I did as a CEO is I raised capital. Right. And all I and I never really understood what investors wanted out of out of that. And I never really forced stand back and execution on, well, let's what are we really building? Well, yeah, if somebody asked us for something, is that's cool, we'd build it, right? So we were kind of not so disciplined, I guess, would be the would be the, you know, and you you start and your accountant does a you know a monthly cash flow. Well, you know what, payroll happens four times a, a month. So you know, the month numbers look really good because the sales receivables coming in on the 28th, but you missed the 15th of the month payroll because there's no cash in the bank. And so, you know, being able to manage and, and look at those types of things. So we've made, you know, we've made uh, lots of mistakes, lots of mistakes, undercapitalizing a business, um, not really spending the time at the front end to really plan, not really understanding what the value equation is not spending enough time at customers and prospects and, and not just the ones that love you and, and would, you know, I'm going to buy from Jerry because Jerry was a good guy when he was at Pricewaterhouse, but the, the tough ones, you know, the ones that are, are from Missouri and don't believe it and convince me. And, and, and uh, so we didn't do that this time around. We spent maybe too much time, but the other thing is the, you know, the first one we did where we had lots of failures, it ended up good in the end, but, in in the end, the, the you know the founders had three percent of the business because it had been diluted out with rounds of capital. So think about that. Five of us, five of us started with a hundred percent, and in the end, when it was sold, we had three. That'll break your heart a little bit when you get that check. Yeah. But but it, but it's but it's because we never said no, and there was times when in that when we likely should have put it down into chapter eleven and brought it back up, but but we but we didn't right because we we just. Yeah, keep plowing and you just keep believing. And so um, a dose of cold water is good. And the thing I didn't do the first time, which I've done, and I'm, I'm way older now, is I've got mentors, right? And lots of them are junior to me, but they're really world class in business and they have skills that I don't have. So I'm not embarrassed to go and ask them questions and say, what would you do in this situation? And being able to be, I guess, be coachable, right? And so I'm I'm 63, and I like to think I'm more coachable than I was when I was 32, than I was when I was 42. And and I think it's true because I've grown up a bit, right? And and in the end, if you're asking somebody for advice, you don't have to take it all the time, but you ought to have you know your ears open and listen to it and give it the respect that it deserves to think through. Well, maybe there is a different way, or maybe there's a different angle on this, or maybe I got to maybe I got to turn that screw a quarter of a turn, and and so you know, getting a mentor, you know, looking at the videos that you guys are doing. I mean, there's lots of little tidbits in that, I'm sure, and you guys have done hundreds of them. And if you apply some of those things and think through, well, what did I do that? Like, do I have a monthly cash flow or do I have a daily cash flow? Like, I used to drive my CFO nuts. Like, I wanted I wanted to be able to see on one graph where we were cash position every day, including Saturday and Sunday for 180 days and had to roll the next day I needed to see the next day. And you know what? Never miss payroll. Never miss payroll.
I've been there. I've been there. The joke we uh, we had a little funny spreadsheet way back when that it would it would push the dumpster fire picture down the down the road by a a day or two. I was like, it was <laughs> like, and at the beginning it was sort of like, all right, we need to book enough to just kick the dumpster fire down the road a little bit more. And I mean, it legitimately have that. And we have screenshots of this the dumpster fire spreadsheet, and it's famous now. And and it's because it was that level of in my case, having gone through a business where I started a business in 2007 and we raised money and everything was grand and revenue went to zero on the first day of January 2009. And we ran cash out and then we were done. And I never forgot that. And so COVID came along and I said, all right, everybody, we're going to have 180 days of cash in the bank and it's going to change some things. And, and we decided to do that. Yeah, you know, and and so your point is, is the the fact is, the really key thing in what you said is that you recognize there can be a dumpster fire, and mm-hmm. so many entrepreneurs just don't <laughs> believe it. Like it, it, the projections and the not that, only that, cost, that, but the dumpster used to be full yeah. of money. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that that's right. But you know, you, COVID. It's interesting. You know, our guys, COVID hit, and because we're we're about go to the clients and. One of our guys said, you know what? Everybody is uh, short on PPE. And from other contacts, like we ended up saying, hey, why don't we go help all these guys source PPE for nothing? So we had a, we had a customer and, you know, we, we got them 50,000 masks and they came from a 3M warehouse in Norway. So they're U.S. made, like they're the real thing. So we just brokered the deal, got nothing for it. And then we got 15 calls because that customer called all their buddies and said, you're out of PPE. Well, call these guys. They're, you know, we do business with them. They might be able to help you. We got so many leads that took nine months because we did what was right for people and never asked for a dime, right? And we're not in the PPE business, never asked for a dime. So when things like COVID happen, you hunker down, you get rid of expense that you don't need. We went up uh, 45% during COVID hiring because we we looked at it and we said we got cash let's take some more let's take this downtime to say let's go build out our product so we just we switched where our cash was going right and to do that we had to we had to hire engineering people and how many people were getting laid off so do you think our engineers like us because we hired them during COVID they do right because we treated them properly and and they're like they're V-Cure folks for life, we hope, as long as we keep doing that and we challenge them with good work. The loyalty that you can create in adversity when there's a problem, we we like to say we find out what our partnerships with our clients are like when it hits the fan. It's not when it's rosy. And it's how do you deal with these situations and can you get on the same side of the table and solve their problems, solve your problems collectively? And then then you've got something that's sustainable and longer term and and you know that that kind of off balance sheet goodwill is is real yeah oh gosh i love that i don't know if i could do any better than that i hope everybody's paying attention those are some good lessons there you know find a problem to solve that has nothing to do with what you do just because it's the right thing to do yeah it's uh it it really served us well and 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 you know that's all gone everybody's okay but but when we when we do a reference check, our clients tell that story. We don't even ask them to. They say, "I'll tell you about these guys. I'll tell you about these guys." They don't run away from adversity when there's a problem. They come and solve it. Let me tell you what they did for us, and and they tell that story. And you know, you you could you couldn't pay them to tell that, right? But the bottom the bottom line is we earned it. 
you know, and you only have integrity once. So, I mean, it is, it is what it is. Well said, well said. Okay. It's futurist time. So you get, you get a few minutes, put on your, your future hat and, you know, tell us uh, where things are going and where you're hoping they're going. And that could be on a, a personal basis, leadership basis, CEO, you know, what are you thinking about on uh, growth of the business? You know, any, any of those things? Well, you know, I'm going to stick to cancer because I, I think we're not too far away technologically where, you know, we're going to be proactive in terms of going to get my annual physical and they draw blood and they're actually, you know, we're going to be able to catch the first cancer cell. And everybody knows if you catch this stuff early, a lot of it's controllable and curable, even more so with all, all the things that are coming through, you know, coming through FDA and all the advances that uh, that pharma and radiation therapy stuff are making. So I think we're going to be able to kind of self-assess ourselves. But, you know, the problem I talked about earlier about not enough physicians, I think the whole model has to change. I think you're going to you know, you're going to be in Walgreens pharmacy and you might be conversing on a video conference with an oncologist and they've taken your blood and they've done sequencing on site and they're using platforms like ours to figure out what to do with that client. And a lot of these medications are going to be oral. You're going to take them for life, just like as if you had Gleevec and leukemia and the, and the farm is going to hand you your pills. You're going to take it home and four months later, you're going to be good. So I think the whole models of where we do things and how we do things covid just really woke the docs up you know like got to have a patient come in got to stick a needle in their arm got to be an infusion suite and that's because they want to make sure you got your medication well why can't we do that with video conferencing why can't my infusion nurse and have a video conference call with you at your breakfast table while you're taking care of your kids getting them out the door and see your tremetinib bottle and you took it and what are the cost savings of that, of not having that patient come all the way in and sit? Like, it's it's ridiculous, right? And what are the patient the patient experience that had been completely left on the, the side of the road? I'm like, you're going to make me come in and do this and spend a half a day off of work so that you can look at me and go, okay, you can take it. You know, and I think that, yeah, that absolutely woke up to what a lot of the technologists were sort of saying, guys, this is this is what we do every day. And, you know, you, you start to think of things like the concept, the hollow lens, and, you know, the physician's got his goggles on, the patient has, and he's looking at the patient in the exam room or at home, and we've superimposed their MRI scan and says, oh, Mrs. Smith, you know, you used to have 100 METs, and you were lit up like a Christmas tree, and there's only two. Like, we're winning this battle. And having the patient visualize that, even though you're remote, and then, you know, connecting in, you know, Dr. Paul Bunn and lung cancer, and he's retired and he's sitting in his, in his home, uh, you know, up in the mountains. And he's consulting on this because he's got 75 years worth of experience. And so I think technology has really got, uh, is really going to be at the forefront of enhancing communication, of enhancing the provider, patient dialogue and experience, whether it's you know, hands-on or remote. And there's always going to be some things that you've got to physically be there for, but we're going to see, we're going to see more of, of that. We're going to see a lot of leverage around data. You know, we look at, at our data and we say, well, that's cool. Standard of care says you should be put on this treatment plan, Mrs. Smith, because you've got breast cancer, just had your mastectomy and you just finished your radiation therapy. And then our ability to query what's happened in the world and say, well, there's actually a thousand cases that fit yours to a T, same gene alterations. What were their outcomes? Well, their outcomes are 
10% better than what we're predicting on standard care. Well, what did they get? And being able to link all this knowledge together and put it in the hands of that physician and that patient in real time, and then also say, is it going to be paid for? Yeah, it's going to be paid for. And, and having the physician and, and the patient make a really informed decision and go to something that's better than standard of care. And then, you know, the, the, the insights that we're going to get out of that when we're there on machine learning and, and, you know, what's the, what's the one out of 20,000 genes that's really holding us up. Let's go pour some real money into that. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the, the COVID vaccine, how do you get a COVID vaccine in nine months? Right. You, you concentrate your resources, you put really smart people on it and you get rid of the BS, regardless of politics, right? You get rid of the BS. It, 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 it's amazing, but you know what? Shouldn't it be the standard now? Shouldn't we be targeting? Shouldn't we be targeting nine months instead of nine years? I think we should. It's like at the post the post mortem on that experience. I hope will lead to that that type of of learning and, and change in a in a very calcified system. So you know, we hope that we can have that sort of evolution across the board, but uh, it's fantastic to hear that it's just inspirational, the stuff that you're coming up with. So I can't wait to see, you know, when and how it all comes to fruition. Well, we, uh, we don't have any, any trouble getting up in the morning and going to work because we're having fun and, and, you know, we're seeing just dramatic uh, results for patients, like sometimes 20, 21 times survival rate, you know, cure rates on things. And, and they're, they're small ends right now, but they're going to be big ends and, and societies like we're going to lick this puppy in the next five years, I believe. Awesome. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for hanging out. Love this great episode. Uh, anybody wants to get in touch with, with you and yours, how, how do they go about doing that? You know, ping me an email, jerry.hogue, G E R R Y dot hogue, H O G U E at V care. It's V I E C U R E.com. And uh, we'll go from there, but uh, happy to help. I really enjoyed this and I really enjoy your program. I think there's lots of, tidbits and you know uh, i watch them and i learn something and and i've made most of the mistakes at least i thought i did but i i keep learning that there's <laughs> there's always another mistake i can make that happy to I, bring up more and, when, and yeah. when you do we'll have you on so keep yeah. keep a good journal so <laughs> all right sounds good i really Thanks, enjoyed Jerry. it you have a great day appreciate you yeah take care thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the leaders of b2b podcast if you enjoyed the show please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.